Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Longtime listeners of our show know that each and every week, a guest and I unpack the nuances of the weekly Torah portion, that section of the five books of Moses that is identified by tradition to be read on Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. This week's Torah portion comes to us from the book of Bamidbar, the set fourth book of the Torah, and it is the second parasha. It begins in Numbers 4 and continues through number 7. Let me give you a brief overview. In the first parasha, entitled Bamidbar, there was a counting of the Israelites in the desert. This week begins uh, counting and tells us that there are 8,500 Levite men between the ages of 30 and 50 who will be doing the actual work of transporting the tabernacle. The Torah portion shifts then and introduces us to a series of laws that are usually not well known. It first introduces us to the law of Sota the procedure in which a wayward wife suspected of unfaithfulness to her husband is uh, offered an opportunity to prove herself. We are also offered the law of the Nazir. Samson was a Nazir who forswears wine, lets his or her hair grow long, and is forbidden to become contaminated through contact with a deadly body. Aaron and his descendants, the Kohanim, are instructed on how to bless the people of Israel. The leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel each bring their offering for the inauguration of the altar. Although their gifts are identical, each is brought on a different day and is individually described by the Torah. It appears to be a rather brief Torah portion. But in addition, this week, the Jewish people celebrate a festival known as Shavuot, means weeks. It celebrates the completion of seven-week Omer counting, the period between Passover and Shavuot. I think my guest and I, uh, Rabbi Stephen Wise, um, are going to begin our conversation with a discussion of Shavuot. Rabbi Wise is the spiritual leader of Shari Beth El Congregation of Oakville, Canada. Um, he has been the rabbi there since 2007. Prior to coming to Canada as a rabbi, he spent two years as assistant rabbi at Temple Beth El in Boca Raton, Canada, uh, Florida. He was ordained from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 2005 and has a BA from the University of Toronto and an MA from Brandeis University. He is a native Canadian from Toronto, and it's a pleasure to welcome him to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Hi, Rabbi Garten. Thank you so much. This is a really good opportunity to talk some Torah with you. It's a wonderful opportunity for us to share some thoughts about the sacred text. And so let's begin, as I suggested, speaking of the holiday of Shavuot. Help our listeners understand what the Torah says about the holiday, and then perhaps you can help them understand the transition that's been made throughout the generations. 
That's a great point because like many holidays, you know, it starts with perhaps a few lines in the Torah text. And then over the course of Jewish history, we add uh, rituals and elements that perhaps uh, because of modernity or just because the evolution of our people throughout time. Um, looking back into the biblical text, it's really a, a simple seeming holiday um, regarding two significant things. One is the harvest festival. So we are in Israel. This would be harvest time. And so um, we're recognizing that there are certain moments in the Jewish year to to sort of recognize that the land is important. Are we gonna are we gonna take those first fruits of the land? So that's why it's often called um, the holiday of Habikurim, Chag Habikurim, giving of the first fruits. Um, but perhaps the second and most, uh, I think, more maybe more significant is this idea that on this day Moses ascended Mount Sinai and received the commandments from God atop amidst thunder and lightning with the people at the bottom listening and preparing to understand what it means to be a Jew. So um, it's interesting because, as you suggested, the Torah speaks of this festival as a harvest festival. And it uh, acknowledges kind of a springtime harvest, um, usually thought of as a barley harvest. And um, we are uh, asked to count seven weeks between Passover and this holiday. And the Torah really doesn't suggest um, how the seven weeks will be concluded other than to say that it's a festival. Exactly. Um, but throughout time, as you also suggest, there's been this morphing into a observance of the people of Israel standing at Mount Sinai and receiving the Torah. Um, before we speak to um, the significance of receiving the Torah, maybe you can help our listeners understand how um, Jewish history has led us from an agricultural festival uh, described in just a few paragraphs in the Torah to a uh, monumental day of uh, receiving the transcendent Torah um, of standing at Sinai, the revolu revelation. How do we get there? Yeah, it, it is interesting. Um, other holidays have those sort of dual meanings. Passover also was the beginning of an agricultural season, the planting season, but it gets superseded by the redemptive story of our uh, movement from slavery to freedom. And later on in the fall, we're going to have another holiday, Sukkot, which also coincides with the end of the harvest season, but has that dual meaning where the Jewish people uh, you know, celebrate by being in booths. And uh, we also talk about the wandering through the desert. So a lot of our Jewish holidays have the, these dual meanings. Um, but, you know, the harvest part of the, of the holiday was probably more significant in ancient times. Right when you are so dependent on the weather, when you're so dependent on rain, and and when fruit comes out of the ground, you celebrate in a way and you give thanks to God. And so it was set up in a structure that you would take some of those first fruits and bring them to Jerusalem to honor God, to say thank you for the rains, thank you for the earth that gives us this bounty. And so our lives were, you know, intimately connected to the land. But over time, when, first of all, the temple was destroyed not once but twice, and after the second time, we're dispersed 
out throughout the world. And so the power of the of a land-based holiday that centers around agriculture and sacrifice loses loses its meaning. Um, but to regain more meaning, we we kind of amplify this moment of Sinai, the moment of receiving Torah. And so this becomes the focus of the holiday, that moment where we encounter God and accept these commandments as the guiding posts for our lives. It is uh, a wonderful uh, attribute of uh, Jewish tradition to um, acknowledge in many ways that the destruction of the temple and the diaspora could have led to the um, complete um, destruction of the, the Jews as a religious people. And certainly throughout history, there have been moments when people's lives um, as a religious people have been lost due to conquest or external events, but ours uh, morphed into something very different. Um, and so we have this, as you suggested, dual meaning for the holiday. Um, and today, more and more people think of the holiday as a holiday of um, uh, celebration of leaving Egypt, of moving from God, from Pharaoh's uh, servitude to Pharaoh to a relationship with the deity. Um, So today, since we don't really bring first fruits to Jerusalem, and few of us living in Canada or the United States um, harvest the barley, um, how do we celebrate this festival? Right. So, yes, uh, you know, it's such a good point, the way our holidays evolve, and, and, and we have to give credit to the rabbis of the time who who refused to let Judaism die uh, and constantly evolved and changed and, and made it more and more relevant to the Jews wherever you were living. It, you know, it had to be a religion that didn't have to focus on one specific geographic spot, but it, it, it moved into our hearts and into our small communities and, and our synagogues. So to celebrate today, we do have some elements that harken back to those fruits. I remember, Rabbi Garten, you and I both, because I grew up at Holy Blossom Temple where you served for many years, I remember that moment of bringing in flowers and decorating our sanctuary to remind us of the first fruits. And I think there were fruits as well, but um, so that kind of brings that harvest element. Although people should recognize that in Judaism, the flowers in a synagogue, um, there's something, you know, that doesn't really sit well with, with our traditions. So I, uh, you know, a lot of synagogues will sort of have flowers, but also cutouts, so, so because we don't, you know, want to have too many flowers in there, the flowers that die, we don't want to kind of recognize, you know, there, there's that at funerals too in Judaism, right? We don't have flowers to sort of symbolize life when we're experiencing death, even though we want to honor someone who died, we do it in different ways. So definitely the flowers and the first fruits, there's like a hint of that. But, um, you know, the, the, I think the more popular way to celebrate this holiday is to study Torah and to eat dairy products. Those are the two big ones that are happening now. So how do we get uh, studying Torah? We understand its connection to the festival, but how do we get uh, eating dairy from this festival? That, yeah, that it does seem like a bit of a stretch. Um, You know, we've, I think maybe people are familiar with the phrase, the land flowing with milk and honey. 
So we, uh, you know, the Israelites are receiving Torah and God says, now you're on a journey to go to the land of Israel and you'll have that milk and honey. So we want to, we want to get a taste of that. So we sort of eat dairy to remind us of that taste. Um, others say, and of course, there's so many different variations here and, and opinions. Some say that we were at Mount Sinai and the Hebrew word for the peak of Sinai is the Gavunim. And Gavunim relates to the Hebrew word Gavina, which means cheese. So perhaps we eat cheese to remind us of the peaks of mountains. Um, another idea is that up to this point, the Jews weren't given the kosher laws. It's only in now that we realize that meat and milk cannot be eaten together, and we have to slaughter meat in a very specific way. So if we don't know all the rules of eating meat, when we celebrate this holiday, we should eat dairy because the Jewish people at the time, it took, it took some, you know, they had to learn how to slaughter the animals properly, how to not mix. And they're like, you know, let's just eat dairy. And that way we can give ourselves a little bit of, of uh, wiggle room here as we learn. So we eat dairy uh, for that reason as well. Um, yeah, those are different things I've heard. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's so fun how our like traditions evolve and I've heard different rabbis give different opinions. And all I know is, is it's a delicious holiday because when you can have cheesecake and blintzes and cheese barrecas and. So, so for our listeners, this is really the homiletical approach to understanding a holiday. The tradition of eating dairy, uh, arose over centuries and, the origin of that tradition is lost to history, but we now um, live with the homiletical interpretation, and we pass those on to our children. Um, now, Rabbi, you serve a congregation that's affiliated with the Reform Movement, um, and you grew up in a Reform congregation. One of the more liberal approaches to Judaism in North America and the world. And one of the festivals, um, one of the components of the festival of Shavuot was, um, a graduation ceremony known as confirmation. Um, our Christian listeners also have an experience of confirmation in their churches. Perhaps since we use a word um, in both traditions, you could explain to the best of your knowledge how this tradition started and whether in your synagogue or other synagogues that you know of, the tradition remains part and parcel of Shavuot. Yeah, so I grew up in that liberal context, as you describe, and it was always taught to me that by the time you get to 10th grade, that is an opportunity to confirm your Judaism. And so as a group, whereas a bar mitzvah is sort of an individual uh, milestone, this was a group milestone that together on Shavuot, we studied, we led a service, um, we wore white robes. I remember uh, the women of our group bringing in flowers uh, and we uh, it centered around the Ten Commandments. And it was a very... I found it a very powerful moment as a young adult, you know, turning 16, kind of uh, in the middle of my teenage years and sort of taking that opportunity, whereas at 13, you're still a, a very young adult. You're still trying to understand and grasp the enormity of Jewish practice and Jewish history. At 16, perhaps you have a little bit more perspective. Um, maybe at 13, it's something that is expected of you because your parents or your grandparents, or the, you know, it's like you have to have a bar mitzvah, whereas 
at 16, it became more of a personal choice that I said, I want to be a part of this along with my, my, you know, my friends. I think there was a group of 30 of us that were confirmed on that day. Um, I, I learned subsequently that uh, confirmation was uh, part of the liberal, the liberal Jewish approach to, to that, what I just described of, you know, at 13, is bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah too young? Is, is, is a young adult at that age really able to appreciate everything? And there was um, an idea of moving bar bat mitzvah from 13 to 16, which would match, as you mentioned, uh, you know, in, in the Christian perspective, ha- having that confirmation of, of identity. Um, while this might have been a good idea, and maybe it worked for a little bit, uh, it didn't really take hold. Bar bat mitzvah retained its hold on, on the Jewish psyche. But in a great innovation, the reform movement was like, well, let's do 13 and 16. Why not? Like, let's have that extra moment. I mean, I personally felt it, it, it was really, really important. I, I you know, I felt, um, you know, it, it, it really meant something to me to stand up in front of the congregation at 16 and kind of reaffirm the things that I had said at 13. And and so I'm glad that this this uh, has continued in many reform synagogues. I should also say many because not all. So where I serve at Shar Bethel in Oakville, uh, we do not have confirmation 16. And I'll just give my personal opinion why I think it didn't evolve there. First of all, it was it's a small town that only has one synagogue. And if you have reform, conservative, orthodox, maybe you have choices and families might choose one or the other for various reasons. Being the one synagogue, we had to try and you know have a big uh, you know a big tent for all Jews. So confirmation maybe never got off the ground. That could be one reason. But another reason, and this is the one that I kind of stand behind, is that uh, while I love the idea of sixteen, uh, I think eighteen is even better. So to me, um, if I can keep our youth engaged all the way through their high school years and sort of graduate. Uh, then to me, that's a really powerful moment. So in our synagogue on Saturday morning, uh, as part of the Shavuot holiday, our high school graduates will be honored for continuing to remain involved. And they will give, you know, read Torah and and give their own sermons or uh, teachings and, and kind of show that, yeah, I've, I've gone all the way through my high school years because at 16, maybe you do confirmation. Then by where do they go at 17, 18? So I kind of I kind of pushed it a little bit to 18. I really wanted to keep those kids all the way through. So it, it, in, a, in a sense, trying to find the right age in modernity for when um, teenagers can um, affirm their Jewish identity and their Jewish commitment, similar to what happened on Mount Sinai. For those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the story in Exodus, the Israelites come to Mount Sinai. Um, We read about it in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, and they stand at the mountain and the revelation takes place. And all of the Israelites were told, affirm as one their commitment to what we now call the Ten Commandments, but this... uh, constitution of the Israelites and their covenantal relationship with God. And so whether it was at 13 or 15 or 16 or 18, uh, trying to find the right moment for young people to affirm their commitment to their Jewish identity and their Jewish practice has been the goal of Shavuot uh, observances. Um, 
do you find that many people um, still observe Shavuot? Or because it comes in the spring and the weather is nice, um, and though it has the um, enticement of cheesecake and um, Jewish crepe known as blintzes, um, far fewer people observe this holiday. Yeah. And, 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 and I think you're right. It, it, it's, it is too bad because I think this holiday is so rich. But because of the way it falls in the calendar here in North America, especially springtime, there's just seems to be so many opportunities to be outdoors or, um, yeah, we lose it. So I think what I mentioned earlier about the confirmation ritual, putting it on Shavuot was certainly an idea from our modern day rabbis to like give a little bit more, um, you know, incentive for Jews to sort of be more active and participatory even into these uh, later spring months or early summer uh, as the weather kind of seems to get people doing things and less likely to be in the synagogue. And, and, and yeah, that's, it's, you know, it's, um, it is too bad because of how great this holiday is with all the, the significance about our receiving Torah and uh, the element, you know, the food elements, all those are others, like I think enticements to bring people back. There's one other tradition that you haven't mentioned, which I think would be of interest to our listeners, and that is that which is known as Tikkun Leil Shavuot. Um, it's a, in Jewish tradition, it's a relatively modern um, aspect of the holiday. Um, perhaps you can share with our listeners um, what you know about Tikkun Leil Shavuot and perhaps how, if um, you and your congregation uh, actualize that tradition. Uh, during the pandemic, of course, there were some challenges with it. But let's talk a bit about Tikkun Leil Shavuot. Yeah, it's, it's so funny how you say it's, it's a modern adaption and modern is 17th century. You know, when you look at the span of Jewish history, that is modern, even though, you know, we've, we've been around for so long. So, yeah, it, w- it was the idea that uh, the Jewish people uh, were waiting at Mount Sinai when Moses went up, and they waited all night to receive Torah. And so these uh, Jews, mostly living in Tzfat in northern Israel on a mountaintop, uh, kind of adapted some of the more mystical, spiritual aspects of Judaism. And they're like, well, if the Jews stayed up all night back then, maybe we should be staying up all night. What will we experience if we keep our eyes open and study? And so hour by hour throughout the evening, all the way through to the sunrise, this tikkun is an opportunity to learn from different teachers or in small groups, but stay up all night studying the Torah and then praying to God with the sunrise. Um, I had an opportunity when I was living in Israel to stay up all night in Jerusalem and then walk with hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the city towards the old city to Kotel and stand at the wall as the sun rose with, at that point, thousands of worshipers who had stayed up all night and to offer those morning prayers, it was it was a moment I would never forget. Um, but yes, tikkun beca- has become um, you know something that has really um, brought a lot of Jews together to learn and study in different communities around the world. Um, our community will be doing a study, although I find that all the way through the night, hard to get people to stay. You know, if, if we stay up till ten, eleven o'clock, that's pretty good. But it's it's interesting that you mentioned COVID because. Um, during the pandemic, that that first, uh, you know, right in that first May of 2020, when we were trying to figure 
how to <laughs> how to live Jewishly when we're all isolated at home. Um, a group of rabbis across Canada said, "Well, you know, everyone's doing Zoom things. We're, we're learning together. Can we make a tikkun, you know, online?" And so um, teachers from across the country um, all gathered and each offered a lesson at nine, ten, eleven. I remember I was the two to three a.m. And I'm like, there's nobody who's going to be waiting up. But sure enough, uh, when I logged in, uh, there were people awake and listening. I think they were listening and studying and we were engaging in conversation. Um, and that, uh, I think, was a just a wonderful way to kind of, you know, stand up to COVID and say, you know, okay, we're isolated in our homes and we can still do something. And that worked actually with the Zoom platform. You know, it kind of worked perfectly for this kind of thing. So um, I should remind our listeners that tikkun usually is translated as preparation. And so this study opportunity was the uh, moment to prepare oneself for receiving the Ten Commandments, as Rabbi Wise said, to replicate what might have taken place for the Israelites as they were waiting for the revelation. And so much of this holiday of Shavuot is um, associated with the history of the Jewish people, firstly as an agricultural people, and then as a uh, religious covenantal people um, standing at Sinai, um, whether the Israelites ate uh, cheesecake or um, cheese blintzes is unknown to us. But it's also true that this 50-day period um, between Passover and Shavuot is uh, an opportunity similar to the month before the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, uh, to reflect and to prepare um, for this seminal event in uh, the life of the Jewish people. Um, in your community, um, do you have the community um, uh, practice, the tradition um, of uh, counting the Omer? Yeah, we, we do the counting of the Omer. I would say as a congregation, once a week, we sort of mark the week. Uh, maybe perhaps some are doing it on a daily basis. I'd say more likely the, the sort of the weekly notice on Shabbat. Okay, we're a week in and then we count the seven weeks. Great. So... Um, our conversation this morning has been with Rabbi Stephen Wise of uh, Congregation Shari Beth El in Oakville, and we've been chatting about um, Shavuot. There's one other tradition that we haven't spoken about, and we have about 30 seconds to do so, and that's reading the Book of Ruth. Um, so can you tell people why we read the Book of Ruth in a brief 30 seconds? Yeah, quickly, it's a story of Ruth who uh, becomes uh, the first convert to Judaism. But really, the, the key is that in the love story with her and Boaz, it's harvest time. And he sees her in the field gathering the sheaves. And that's when they sort of first fall in love and he helps her out. And so it's that connection to the harvest festival that, that we read the book of Ruth on Shavuot. Great. So it's a harvest story and it's a love. Ruth says, your God will be my God. Um, and we have uh, many, many different aspects. Uh, and homiletically, again, one can see this as a story of love between God and the Jewish people. I want to thank my guests for helping us understand 
this holiday. You can hear a broadcast of our show on chri.ca as a podcast or on the radio station 99.1 or downloaded anywhere that you get your podcasts from. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and a good day. Oh,